you could please just introduce yourself and then we'll I have I have ideas. Okay. So I'm Ben Brush. Yeah. I'm a uh, critical care neurologist at NYU Langone Hospital. I'm also an outdoorsman, a rock climber, and a appreciator of the arts. I, I realize that you. I, I, I was reading your LinkedIn page today, <laughs> which is vastly out of date. Oh my god, I haven't updated that in my god ten years. Uh, I didn't realize that you hiked the entire Appalachian Trail. Oh, you didn't know that? No. Oh. Uh, so yeah, I, I thought I, we talked about that before. So we, what I would like, I'd like to start with is at what age did you realize that you were a type A personality? Oh, uh, I don't know if I am a type A personality. I think I'm an aspiring type A personality. Okay. You're certainly, it's, uh, an achiever in society, probably an overachiever. I'm not saying that you're yeah. overachieving what you're capable of, but you're a person who wants to do things at a very high level. Yeah, that's that's fair. That's true. Because, I, because you don't get satisfaction at a lower level, or just because it feels good to do it at that level. I think it, I think it's a personal thing. I think it's just that it feels good to to feel like whatever you're doing, you're doing it the best you can. Yeah. And as as long as I can say that that whatever I'm doing, I have given my all to. Yeah. I I'm okay if I'm not. You know the fastest person to ever hike the Appalachian Trail. I'm okay right. if I'm not, you know, the number one neurologist in the state or whatever, but... Give it time. Well, <laughs> it's still <laughs> 10 years in and still new to it. Uh, <laughs> six years in. But um, but yeah, I don't know. I, it must be something with my upbringing that it, it's just, yeah, it's it's a feeling that whatever you do, just do it to your utmost. Right. Um, and that applies across the board. And people in your family are equally as driven? Uh, I'm just wondering if it's a family trait or if it's something specific to you. Yeah, probably through my mother. Okay. Yeah. My mom was a television producer. Um, I don't know if you knew that. No. But um, she was a, a TV producer. She was like, she did local TV, then she moved out to LA for a brief period. Um but she she's a very driven person, and I definitely get that from her. Um, not that not that my my father and my sister aren't, but yeah. just like if there's a person that has a fire burning inside, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's her. And I'm sure there have been things in your life, or maybe there haven't been, where you either hit a physical wall or a mental wall where you're just like, yeah, as bright as I am and as driven as I am, I just can't get past this thing or you know, has there been anything that you've slammed up against and just had to say, you know what, I'm never going to be able to X, you know, and that's okay. And I'm going to turn around and go in a different direction. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, pivot that a little bit and I'll just say, I guess the one thing that, that really was a per perspective shift was when I got to, Harvard Medical School and suddenly was confronted with people that were just like infinitely more brilliant than anyone that I had ever encountered before. Yeah. And, you know, all of a sudden when, when looking around and kind of ranking yourself against others, you're like, oh, well, I'm the bottom of the barrel <laughs> yeah, yeah. in many ways. And, uh, and, and it wasn't so much of a insurmountable thing. It was just a 
you know, I, I'm never going to have the same testing scores as 75% of the, the rest of my class. That's just, that's not just that's you just being humble. Me. That's like, honestly, like oh, these like, people are like, the, these are folks that would just roll out of bed and get it and yeah. just sort of, uh, you know, it's, or they, they just have like perfect memories sure. where, whereas I'm, you know, they're slaving hours and hours and hours in, you know, our, these like small tutorial classrooms, just studying and trying and, and repeating things over and over and drawing things out. Uh, and I just would never get to that same level of memory, that same level of, uh, of comprehension as some of them. My it was a select to, group. My mother used to work with a lawyer, an attorney at a law tax law firm. And he had the entire U.S. tax code memorized. So you would say, "Yeah, some people got you it." Know, hey Ben, wh- where is that thing about like shifting adjusted gross thing? To-? He'd be like, "Oh, volume twenty-seven, page three thirty-four, bottom paragraph." Yeah, you see that in like TV and movies and but stuff. It but they're exists. out there. Yeah, it's nuts. <laughs> it's crazy when you run into them. You could imagine how invaluable that would be. Yeah, and and there's certain things I think medicine and law arguably maybe engineering where that kind of memorization, that kind of memory it's, you know, I was thinking the other day, I I have a number of friends who have perfect pitch Mm. and are, you know, brilliant musicians, but perfect pitch is sort of like being an artist that can actually see in color and be able to describe colors. doesn't mean you can paint a nice painting right? where memory is just so universal. It's like so foundational to learning that it really is a huge chunk of, of, of that process. Yeah. You know, I guess coming back to your original question where, where I ran up against that, that wall a bit in terms of just the sheer memorization of insane amounts of material. Uh, I decided that, okay, fine. I can't remember everything, but instead I, I know that I'm, I have more of an engineering brain. I, I understand how systems work and connect, and I can really... I, I focused much more so on, on that aspect of it. it. And even if I can't remember the name for every single solitary molecule and channel of you know, whatever plugs into that cell, I can, I can, know, I can focus on knowing how the, the system itself works yeah, because that's, that's a simpler yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah, play to your strengths, exactly. It, what is your undergrad in? Neuroscience. In neuroscience. Yeah. So you knew that you wanted to go into neurology from the beginning. Sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I toyed with neurosurgery. Uh, yeah. And then spent some time uh, with the neurosurgeons and had the majority of the, the neurosurgery residents that I was working with tell me not to do it, <laughs> really? that it wasn't worth it. Um, and I think... It, that, that, that was something that also happened with medicine is nobody ever told me not to do medicine. And I think it would have been interesting if somebody had, uh, because there's a lot of things that I enjoy in the world and medicine's one of them. But, uh, and I think medicine, I think what I do is fascinating, like really, really important. And I, I love the, the moments that I have and the connections that I get to to share with with people that are going through something you know so extreme because that's what it is in critical care 
a lot of times it's end of life and that's you know a very special privilege but did i need to do this as the the thing in my life or or did i end up here because of of those uh those feelings um i didn't need to do it do you there think were other people, things I could have done. Some of your colleagues, it's like that's the only thing they can ever imagine themselves absolutely, doing. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. There were some people that had that drive. For me, I, I went into medicine because I loved the problems. I, I loved the the fact that this was something that I would tackle and address, do interventions on, test hypotheses, and get answers, and do that in a short time span. Um, I had spent two years doing uh, more basic science. Well, I had done basic science research through my neuroscience degree in undergraduate. And then afterwards, I had done more, slightly more translational neuroscience um, research. And I just needed a faster pace. I needed... Right, because some of that is we're going to come up with a hypothesis and study it for two years and then write a paper. Oh, two years is a short time, yeah. So I could imagine that just... I guess my question is, though, with medicine... With lab work and doing analysis like that, there's a lot of statistics involved. There's a lot of, you know, um, it's, it's, it's taking a lot of numbers and crunching them down to, to a smaller conclusion. With medicine, so much, what, so much of what you do case by case is inherently wishy-washy because it's a, it's, a, it's a case of one, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I could imagine that also being frustrating because you could make the same decision on 10 different people and it might work on nine of them, but not on the one you're, you're, you know, the patient you have in front of you right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so there's ambiguity there. Yeah. Medicine is nowhere near where I thought it was just in terms of, you thought it would be more cause and effect. Well, I just thought we were further along. You know, especially neurology, right? Yeah. I mean, neurology, everybody says, well, I don't know. There's like neurology has this sort of like two different uh, like faces that it presents to the world. It's like we have all these advances. We are understanding the brain. We we have the human connectome project where like everything, every neuron in the brain is being mapped out. Everything's being, you know, figured how it connects, what's going where. Do we actually know what the brain does? Like ultimately, no. We don't really know how it works. We don't really know. And and like the the thing that I came to appreciate, uh, the vast oversimplification. But the the thing that I came to appreciate throughout my neurology training is, yeah, sure, we're getting better. But in terms of what we really know, it's still just drop in the bucket. And and there's so so. And I got to imagine the minute you think you have something nailed down, and then you throw in neuroplasticity or something, and you're just like. Well, man, somebody else had this happen, and their yeah. brain rewired, and they were still able to speak or whatever. Yeah, it's, and it, that's what's so humbling about it. I mean, so the do you think we're ever going to get anywhere, or do you think that there's just inha- it's nah, inherently too complex of a system to understand? Well, I mean, that's a great philosophical Both question. Of them can be is true. the yeah. it, is the complexity of the human brain great enough that it can understand its own complexity? Right. That that's that's <laughs> yeah, one yeah, of these yeah. classic like philosophy problems. Um, you know, the complexity of any system, can that be great enough to understand itself? Uh, probably not, but, um, maybe with, a si- with AIDS, with assistive devices, with, you know, computers, but, um, 
we we will get better and you know there we're making advances all the time sure the i guess the thing that i was going to come back to is that the difference between like between research and medicine is maybe that that basic level of discovery and the the discovery that you have is different in research where you're you're literally figuring out something new and you know taking that that sphere of knowledge and expanding it by a little tiny bump um, you're putting your brick on the wall yeah you're putting a brick on the wall uh there's still that discovery there because you do it for each and every patient sure and you know you have your little sherlock holmes moment and and you know that's something that's so fun you know i it i don't know you start to get in trouble when you talk about medicine and having fun doing it because it's supposed to be this austere science where you are so dedicated to it. But we as doctors get something from it too. I mean, that's why we... I mean, uh, I, the I satisfaction think, of puzzle solving itself, yeah. especially in the kind of work you do, I mean, that has to be a huge part of it. Oh, big motivation. Oh, for me, yes. Like I said, there's other people that do it because this is the only thing they could ever do. For me, I do this because I, I get great... Uh, not feedback. Uh, I I get a. I just get a a, a. a sense of fulfillment from doing those problems, from that problem solving, from from, yes, from helping someone else too, and oftentimes from helping the family, if not the person. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's it it's its own kind of minor discoveries and, and it's that, that Sherlock Holmesian kind of moment. Sure. Yeah. Uh, w- when you sat down, I think you said what critical neurology, critical care. It? Yeah. It's, Neurocritical it's, care. Okay. So I see a neurologist for my migraines. That is a very specialized mm-hmm. kind of thing. The woman I see, Dr. Broner, she's amazing, mm-hmm. but she's very specific to what she does. What, what explain to me where where your slice of the pie lies? Sure. So I don't see patients in a clinic. Right. I only see patients that come into the hospital, and only if they have a a, a truly severe process going on, and that could be, you know, that they've had a very large stroke, um, they've had a very large bleed in their brain that they've had seizures that won't stop and then we have to put them on a ventilator uh injuries spinal cord injuries that kind of thing? spinal cord injury uh can be one uh traumatic brain injury um nyu where i work is not a trauma center so we don't see that much brain trauma um but at nyu brooklyn um, one of the other campuses that is a trauma center, Bellevue, which is affiliated, is a trauma center. They see a lot of traumatic uh, brain injury, TBI. Um, we see post-operative patients, you know, folks that that get brain surgery, spine surgery, things like that. They'll come to the neurocritical care unit, depending on the, what procedure it was, uh, <clears throat> and I'll monitor them yeah. and make sure that you know things don't go wrong post-op. There's a lot of complexities to that. I, the vast majority of patients that have brain surgery done do great, which is amazing. When Considering you think about brain surgery is only 140 years old or something, right? It was like the 1880s or whatever that they started removing tumors. Yeah. It's amazing. And, and stop just kind of like drilling picks into a person's eye. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Seriously. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, that was actually one of my 
more specific questions, I guess, since you brought it up, I'll say it now. How do we know that the things we're doing in, say, neurology or specifically neurosurgery aren't going to be looked back upon as crazy as lobotomies? You know what I mean? Like, how do we, I guess we don't know, because all of these things were accepted in their day. Mm -hmm. And yet, except for very specific circumstances where it's, you know, the only thing we've come up with, the only treatment we've come up with, people don't do this anymore. Certainly not in the way they were before, right? And I'm sure there's other treatments like that that have come and gone. And maybe we don't even really have anything better. We just realized the thing we were doing was causing more damage, harm than good. Yeah. That's the difference between medicine and evidence-based medicine. Um, And evidence-based medicine is shockingly young. And, you know, previously medicine, medicine has been practiced, you know, since BC, like before Christ or whatever. It's a, it's an ancient field. Anytime a person had an injury, somebody always was trying to heal them, right? Yeah. And through shamanistic approaches, through more like traditional medical approaches, through chakras. Yeah. Who knows? There's, there's so many different ways that it's been approached. And then there was the, the, the emerging study of science and all of that. And that led to leaching and this and that. And, you know, maybe there was some benefit to what they did. Probably not. Um, but the actual evidence-based medicine where we study things and see if there is utility to what we're doing shockingly young um (coughs) sorry um yeah shockingly young only in the last it's like 80 ish maybe 100 years or so early 1900s um late 1800s maybe uh that that we actually started looking at what we were doing to care for people and seeing whether or not it was making people better. Yes, the Enlightenment's addition like, to to medicine, yeah. Yeah, it, it, crazy concept, you know. Yeah. Is what we're doing helping? Maybe yeah. we should look at that. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, that's when we start seeing that, oh, hey, you know, that lobotomy, turns out it's really not so good an idea. And and I'd like to think that a lot of the 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 interventions that we're doing nowadays they're they're going through a much more rigorous process. I, yeah. I don't just like to think that it it is assuredly so. It, will there be things that we look back on and say, "Wow, was that foolish?" Absolutely. I mean, that's already happened, but. Uh, it's, it's usually less of a, wow, that was foolish. It was just, well, you know, that wasn't as right as we thought it was. It's the best we had. I mean, in oncology, like the, you Mm -hmm. know, the changes in chemotherapy over the last 50 years are, you know, the things my father took in the eighties would aren't even used now because they're way too harsh and they end up causing mesotheliomas and things later. You know what I mean? So it's like, but maybe that's the best we had then. It was. And, and yeah. they were, it was an acceptable risk at that time because yeah. there was nothing else. Yeah, 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 so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, just the, as we lower the, the side effects and risks associated with the medications, um, then, yeah, it makes our old tools look barbaric. But, you know, yeah, all we had back then was a hammer. We didn't have the chisel to go with it. Well, speaking of barbaric uh, and and iterating on 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 the idea of advancement i mean imaging mm. technologies in the last 40 years right yeah i mean it's we bring computers in we bring not just mris we have fmris right so we can like see yeah, things through yeah. time like there's i mean th- these kinds of things 
how much of what you do is based upon direct imaging of the patients versus uh, symptoms or, 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 you know, talking to the patients? Yeah. Uh, neurology. Is- you can't, you can't trust the people all the time. Right. But then again, you can't trust the scans all the time. Yeah. No, that, that, that sorry, I didn't mean to cut no, you No, no, no. It, 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 it's a great question because neurology is, is probably one of the, l- uh, I'm sure everybody else would argue me on this, but I, I think that neurology is still a field where the clinical exam is of probably some of the, the greatest importance. And, and if you, you do your exam, and that tells you where you need to look. But yeah, sure, we need imaging. And, you know, we as neurologists are, are also guiltier than most in terms of the just amount of imaging that we order. We get MRIs on everybody. We get CT scans on everybody. Everybody gets vessel imaging. Everybody gets all these fancy tests that we can do. <clears throat> and the, the, the output of that is that, well, we, we do have to weigh them against each other. Because what we see on exam, if we don't see it on the MRI, doesn't mean that it's not true. It just means that maybe our imaging hasn't caught up to the exam finding. Sure. You know, classic example, let's say a person comes in with a stroke. You know, they're not moving the, the right side of their body. You get a CAT scan, looks totally fine. But what does that mean? It doesn't mean that they're not having a stroke. It just means that the changes haven't showed up yet. If you were to get an MRI on the same person, you'd see the stroke. Right. Uh, because MRI will show stroke much earlier. Right. CT can take hours. Ah, I see. Okay. And what is the current state of the art resolution on all these things? Are we down to millimeters? Yeah. Yeah. On, and MRIs are down to millimeters. That's crazy. You can, I mean, they've got MRIs that are strong enough to levitate frogs with their magnetic field. You put somebody in it and you can get almost a like near cellular level of grainy detail. And it's like, it, it's approaching pathology level pathology meaning like if you were to to Slice cut through the tissue itself and look at it under a microscope it's i mean it's it's fabulous uh that's largely research at this point right. it's not it's not out there but um in clinical use when that is available will that change your work or is that almost too much information is there too, is there to too much it. information well, all of the all of these tools it's it's great that you make a tool, but then we have to learn how to use it, and then we have to 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 repeat those studies and study it anew in each and every disease process yeah. that it could be applied to. Because yes, we know how it looks on a one or one point five Tesla MRI, but you then see these weird little changes, and is that actually of clinical importance sure. on a seven Tesla? I don't know. And and of course in. In America, medical equipment is a capitalistic, you know, process. Oh, totally. So then GE comes to you guys and says, we have this new machine that does X, and they're trying to sell you on why you need X. Mm-hmm. Is that actually a thing that happens where it's, you know, that there's a, oh, what do we need that for? <clears throat> or is it whenever something new comes out, do does the people in your world see it as, oh, man, just give me as much as you can? No, there, there needs to be a, 
there needs to be a valid use case before they would they would react in that way. Yeah. And and that use case could be that somebody is doing research on it and so they see that new shiny tool and they go, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, give that to me. I want to study it." Sure. A lot of times that results in partnership with the with the company mm-hmm. and that researcher, you know, may get some of those devices or some of some funding to study it because it's in both their interests. Yeah, they want the good case study, sure. Right, the because the, the the company wants somebody to study it to say that it's good so yeah. that then other people say, "Oh, that's good, let me use it." Yeah. And do, 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 does somebody ever come in with say uh, uh, a stroke your example, somebody can't move their right arm, something like that, right? And you're looking at imaging, and over time, their symptoms actually clear up in a way that you wouldn't think was possible based upon what you're seeing in the imaging, where where their their day-to-day reality of their life has improved to the point where you would say, if you didn't have imaging no other intervention is necessary. But you may look at imaging and say, yeah, but look, there's that vessel that's still clogged in there. Like, I know they, they're they now moving their right hand again, but like, you know what I'm saying? Where where, yeah. the, where there's a separation between if, 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 if it was a machine and it being a person. Because there is a distinction, right? Yeah, yeah. So... In that I'm sorry, example, I'm all these really no, no, questions. it's just it, that that gets it, it the the art of medicine and sort sure. of the 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 level of humility that we all have to have that we don't know, you know, for each and every case what's going to happen. We we can we can look at qualities of things, you know. Yes, in a stroke, a blood vessel is clogged up. There's a part of the brain that's not getting blood. That part of the brain is essentially getting strangled, but Sometimes blood finds another way to get there. There's the what we call collateral flow. Blood finds sort of the, the back roads to get around that that like clogged up artery. And sometimes we can keep perfusing that that bit of tissue. That doesn't work in everyone. Yeah. We've got grading schemas to say how good the you know the brain is at getting collateral flow, and uh, and and that can help us to predict outcomes, but neuroprognostication meaning sort of the okay you've had this happen i see it on the cat scan what are you going to look like in three months are we really that good at it i mean sometimes yes in like extreme cases either way uh but but for the middle cases it's hard it's really hard and you know that's that's one of the things that that I have to tell families is they they want to know on day one, you know, how is this person going to look in a year? What is their chance of recovery? And you're you're imagining the cone of time going out and thinking they could be anywhere within this giant range. That by the cone is huge. It's yeah. it, yeah. It, it, you know day one is is so so hard to prognosticate. It's yeah. so so hard to say what's going to happen. We rely really on on those multiple time points. And then connecting the dots and saying, okay, well, that curve, that line looks like it's a pretty steep curve. You know, they're doing great. And you could make the right decision in the moment that might actually be the wrong answer in the long run. Yeah, that's, well. It's part of the job. Yeah, I guess decision or the the evaluation. Yeah, you're making the right uh, call. um, You know, could be 
could be correct in the moment, but ultimately not include a, an outlier. Yeah. yeah. Are, are there are there standards in your business to where I don't know. Let's say, oh yeah, the 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 vessel that's occluded is uh, f- f- five millimeters, whatever, and it's got a f- four millimeter. It's only you know, like are are there numbers where it's like if it's over this line we do X, if it's under this line we do Y. Yes, and, um, but there's got to be gray area in the middle there, right? There is, and the and. You know, any sort of system of trying to figure out what's going to happen, the more variables you pull in, the the more accurate you're likely to be. Sure. Um, and so rarely is it just, you know, this this stenosis, this tight point, you know, this the, this kind of place where the blood vessel gets gets really narrow is, you know, 90 percent. Like stenosed, you know, sure. compared to the rest of the blood vessel. Sure. Uh, we have all these criteria for when to intervene, when to send a person to surgery, you know, what, who could just, you know, squeak by using some aspirin, maybe, maybe aspirin and Plavix, you know, yeah. things like that. Um, that's, that's all been studied. And, and a lot of it can get relatively formulaic until the person in front of you starts, you know, deviating from formula. When they the drugs are supposed to be working and they're not for some reason, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Then you, that again, that's where the art comes in, sure. and you have to respect the fact that well, this person in front of you is a person and not a number, and you, you've done everything according to the research that we have, but maybe our research doesn't yet encompass these outliers. Okay, so now we have to to think back to again. How do these systems work? How does, you know, what could be going on here? Is there something about this, this narrowing that's different than the, the vast majority of narrowings that were studied? You know, is this one really ratty? Is it irregular? Is it kind of like... The age of the patient? The age of the patient, for sure. sure. Um, and, you know, do they do, you the, do the best thing history, that sure. we think for them? And yeah. something bad happens anyway. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, if I... Let's say I presented with a stroke and I'm in front of you. If you and I were talking, I, as a patient, if I were able to do it at the time, would be asking you questions like at this level. Mm. I want to know what your thought process is. I want to know what your criteria are because that's the way I think. In the same way that you were talking about, you think in in a mechanical way, I tend to that. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I don't have the training you have, but I have the same thought systems underlying that. But you must deal with people who have zero understanding of the science underneath this or statistics or even the idea of five millimeters in their brain or whatever it is. Right. There is a range of the way that you must communicate with patients. How do you deal with that? Is that, is that something that you, I'm coming in with the way that I think about it and I'll try to explain the best I can. Or do you actually have to think, shoot, this person, maybe only ever finished high school or whatever it is. And they're not going to understand if I start talking about X, Y, Z and maybe they're terrified Mm -hmm. and I have to do something to make them feel like I am a person and not a doctor with 74 gigabytes of information that's flooding through my brain right now, trying to figure out the problem that's in front of me. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. What you're, what you're hinting at is the, the new gradient of medical, uh, decision making and shared decision making. 
this is a new new way of thinking about it well it's it yeah it it it, it it's a deviation from the the old school paternalistic medical approach where sure. the doctor comes in tells you that you need the medicine and okay doc whatever you, you say take the medicine yeah. yeah exactly okay doc um some some patients they're that's what they're looking for they, they don't want to make the decision you know that's that and and that's that's totally fine that's that's okay um that's why you get paid the big bucks is to make those decisions for them yeah <laughs> but the by and large what 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 the the new training paradigm is is that our job is to to share our knowledge as best we can with with the patient with their family and inform them as best we can and then uh, really just lay out the options and and say you know we can do this there's risks and benefits associated with that you know that's option a we can do option b there's risks and benefits associated with that there's option C. There's risks and benefits associated with that. Those are really your three options. What and, do you think you, sh- you and want you, to do? And you don't say, if I were you, or as a medical professional, I would say that this is probably the one I would recommend. Do you even go that far, or do you try to stay out of it and and really let them come in clean? That's that's where you in in the conversation. It's it, it's really important to to try to feel out what what the the patient and the family needs you know where what they would benefit from because in in many cases you, you do just want to stand back and and say you know these are the options that that we have in front of us what do you want to pursue sure uh and and for many people that's just a terribly overwhelming thing and and I, that that's a little bit of a problem that I have with this this paradigm, is that, you know, it's it it still is unfair even after we explain as much as we can. It still is unfair to put the onus of that decision on someone who who hasn't been through the you know the they're years and years of training. They haven't that seen dozens of cases that are yeah. similar to this. That you know, and their case is individual regardless. Yeah, my my own style is is to often ask permission to share my uh my feelings about what i think you know the the the, the i have some thoughts if you'd like to hear them yeah yeah exactly uh choice would be um and and usually people take me up on it and and i'll share it and then but that's not me saying this is what we have to do how often do they go with your recommendation though if, if once you get that far are they looking for you to tell them what to do uh Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Sometimes, it, I mean, one of the most common questions that that people ask is, "If this is your mother, what would you do?" Sure. If this is your your loved one, yeah. Let's 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 it, put your emotions on the line too. Right. But that's my answer to that is always, "Well, I know what my mother would want, but the patient is not my mother. I don't know what the patient wants." Yeah. You it, do. It, it may be that you're 86 years old. You had a stroke. You're losing. You don't have you know control of your right side or whatever it is. And somebody says, "Well, we could go in and do surgery on that." Mm-hmm. But you know what? This person probably has five years to live anyway because of some other underlying condition or whatever it is. Maybe that's too dangerous, and they're all right with not having 
use of their right side or whatever it is, right? I mean, yeah. there are there are those situations too where it's just like it's a quality of life question. Quality of life plays into everything that I do so much because a lot of times the the conversations that I'm having are end of life conversations. Yeah. Withdrawal of care. You know, something catastrophic has just happened to the brain. That's why they're in the neurocritical care unit. The you know, the so are after, usually these people, is it usually the family members who are making these decisions at that point? Cause the person is unconscious or unable to make these that's decisions. Right, that's right. And, and so when you can't talk to the, to the patient themselves, you rely on the people that know the patient best. Sure. And because what you're really trying to suss out is what would the patient be okay with? Would they be okay never being able to eat? again would they be okay never being able to get out of a wheelchair again would they be okay with six eight months in rehab would they be okay we can technically save their life but they might not actually be living so what are we actually saving here that's right that's right so many of our studies we show that we we decrease mortality but we increase morbidity meaning we decrease the number of people that die but we just shift those numbers to people who are terribly disabled and it, is that actually and spending something a huge good percentage is... of healthcare costs in the process? Yeah, not I, not that it's a money thing, but there. I mean, there is an element of like, hold on a second. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to spend a million dollars to give somebody a week and a half more life, and they're going to be unconscious the, the whole time anyway. Like, yeah, that's just I, a bad decision. And and you know, I I, I want to be as cost agnostic. I want to be as cost conscious as possible when when thinking about the the next steps that are necessary for the patient, but I want to be as cost agnostic as possible when, uh, when also trying to formulate things. Cause it, you know, it, it, it feels terrible to be, to, 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 to recognize that and say it, but at the same time, yeah, you have to, it's to not share irrelevant the way a, a lot certain, of people want it to be. Right. Well, it, it is, it, it's not irrelevant, right. is what you said. Yeah, it's it is not irrelevant. That's that's absolutely correct. People want it to be like, nope, all, all cost is off the table. It's like, no, 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 cost is a part of this. Yeah, it's, especially when you think about an entire population. Like if you're thinking in a larger sense of you know yeah. healthcare well, in America, and and it is important for for some families to recognize that when they make these decisions, they are committing to an immense cost for themselves. Sure, and. Uh, and that, you know, is is something that can be absolutely terrible. That that yes, that's the case. But if this person is going to require twenty four hour assistance with a, a like nursing level assistance, you know, that means they're hundred fifty thousand dollars a year or whatever. Oh, it's, just yeah, it's it's an immense cost. It's an absolutely immense cost, and people don't appreciate how much of that is covered by insurance versus how much is is self pay. And you know, is that a problem with our system? Yes. Maybe, but is it also uh, a problem with our outcomes? Yes, maybe. And, and the emotional yes. cost on the family, too. Oh, emotional cost is huge. I mean, people don't want to think about that in the moment yeah. of trauma, but, you know, two years into somebody who is unable to get to the bathroom on their own, and that's a completely different world, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's funny when you were earlier, you were talking about neurosurgeons and how a lot of neurosurgeons you have basically said, you don't want to do this. There is a trope in media and in the the world of like the sort of God 
like neurosurgeon, the people who the doctor strangers of the world who were just like, where you may know that the chances of taking care of this occluded blood vessel are 62%. And they're like, no, nah, I could do it. Are there people like that who come in and are just like, whatever you think the chances are, I'm better than the chances that you're giving me of, of completing this successfully. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes sense. They're cocky is what I'm saying. uh, Surgeons in general, blanket statement, there are, you know, (laughs) uh, yes, there is truth to stereotypes. Uh, There's truth to stereotypes about neurologists. Yes, we're a nerdy bunch. We're awkward too. Um, But, but yeah, there, there are truth to stereotypes. In my experience, have I run into surgeons that take quote-unquote, hopeless cases? By and large, no. Um, Because really, well, it it comes down to to the Hippocratic Oath and, and, you know, just really do no harm. Because if what we're going to do is going to cause more injury with... (coughs) Sorry. If what we're going to do is going to cause more injury with our intervention than than potential good, and even best case scenario, the outcome is not going to be great, you know, is it really worth going in, cutting a person open, like cutting off a piece of their skull, scooping out a part of their brain? Like these are invasive things. Yeah. You know? Inherently it's, just destructive. It's not you it's know. destructive. Yeah. And uh you know, yeah, I said earlier that the neurosurgeons said, don't do it. Those were neurosurgery residents, I'll say. <laughs> the, um, the neurosurgeons, the, the, the attending neurosurgeons who have completed their training um, are, are it, it, certainly the ones that I, I work with right now are, are fantastic people. They are incredibly kind. They work incredibly hard. And I think that is the the true defining characteristic. Well, brilliant, very hard workers. Is it is it a lifestyle that I would have wanted for myself? No. Um, and at some point, we all have to make that choice. You know, is the 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 cost to ourselves worth the 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 benefits of the job? Sure. And again, for some people, that's all they could think of themselves doing. Yeah. For me, you know. Critical care neurology is is close enough to having those those super sick patients that you get to ki- take care of, but uh, at the end of the day, do I have a lot more flexibility in my life? I I do, yeah. and do I make a lot less? Yeah, sure, fine, but that's that's okay. <laughs> I also think that in a, in some sort of um. Know, dreamlike state where I imagine myself a neurosurgeon, some fantasy. The literal life or death nature of that, where it's like I did something that killed someone. I mean that that's a real possibility. Yeah, I, I don't. I would have a very hard time with that from a from a from a psychological point of view. And I'm sure the people who do it also have those problems or maybe some of them are just the kind of people who mm. can put that stuff aside. Um, it's also interesting. I mean, the brain is such an interesting thing cause it's, it's an organ, but it's not like a kidney, right? It's like the person's mind resides in the organ that you're working on. 
So it's both a physical thing and it is the person as we know them. Yeah. I mean, the line between those two things, I mean, those, those overlap, right? It's like big Venn diagram mm. where somewhere in the middle is the thing that you're having to deal with. Yeah. And it's yeah. not just the, the neurons and the chunk of stuff in the, in the head. And it's not just, you know, yeah. the person sitting in front of me. It's, it's, it, I'd imagine that psychologically for you, that's an interesting place to sit. Like a fence you kind of got to sit on. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how else to respond to that. No, hey, no, I mean, you're right. <laughs> is, is that, but is that, is that a thing that people think about in neurology a lot? I mean, the organ versus the mind as yeah. we imagine it. I mean, well, we've developed, we've developed replacements for just about everything else. Right. Yeah. You know, we, for, for the kidneys, dialysis sure. for the heart bypass, sure. you know, we've got LVADs, we've got sure. other assistive devices, artificial hearts for the lungs. We got ECMO, uh, for the liver, well, maybe that's harder. Uh, we can approximate some stuff. Pancreas, okay, fine. Uh, bad analogy, but you can't do a bypass for the brain, yeah. right? Uh, that, like you're saying, that, whole that's the mind, that's yeah. the person, and uh, and that that it's it's just a it's a tricky and privileged place to be, where the thing that you are are treating and trying to to save is not just the body, but you know, who they are. Yeah. And can you guarantee that that who they are is going to be the same when they wake up? Uh, Absolutely not. No. And And that's scary. And and, and then trying to tell a a family that, you know, and, and, and what that means, you know, what the, the, when the person wakes up, they're going to be different in some ways means, um, could it's be, tricky. might not be. Could be, might not be, yeah. I mean, that, that's also really interesting for you. It's like work gets done, the person wakes up, you have no idea what you're going to get Yeah. after you recommend a surgery and the surgery happens. Yeah, I mean, you, it's, yeah. Well. You can know the surgery went well, yeah. but until they wake up and start talking, you don't know if something's amiss. Right, right. Um, earlier in your career, before going to medical school, did I read right that you worked in some neuro regeneration? I did. Yeah. Studies. So I was, when I was working as a research assistant at Brown before medical school, I was working as part of this, uh, brain gate project, which was taking, uh, these tiny little chips with a hundred little tiny little needles on them. Yeah. Uh, implanting them into the brain and then using that to directly connect into the the motor cortex, which is the part of your brain that tells your your hand to to move, your arm to go up, down, things like that, and extracting the the signal of those neurons firing. Because when neurons fire, it's a little electrical pulse. Sure. So we can pick that up with that little needle. And you can differentiate between moving your arm and moving your left arm versus right arm versus whatever. Yeah. Largely these were being implanted into say like <clears throat> the hand part of the brain. Sure. Um, because the hands have just a huge amount of dexterity to it. And so there's, there, there's a lot of different neurons that could control a lot of different things there. Ultimately though, what happens is that 
your your brain gets trained to the computer and the computer kind of gets trained to your brain and then they synergize and then it's able to interpret these signals and then you, you can control the mouse cursor on the screen. You could then take those same messages and use that to drive a wheelchair around. And a person that is locked in can't do anything except, you know, maybe blink their eyes yeah. uh, is now mobile. Yeah. Could potentially, you know, feed themselves, could yeah, do tasks. stuff in the world, yeah. Yeah, Getting around the, the the blockage of communication between cortex where the neurons live and the message originates, going down through those long axons, the projections, the wires essentially that carry the signal all the way down into the spine where it connects and then goes out into the nerves that connect to your muscles and then makes those muscles move. There's so many different points of failure. And and the more you think about it, you know, some neurons firing in your brain actually gets a muscle to contract down here to make me do this. Yeah. Or in here. That's like two cells. And that is nuts. Yeah. That that your brain knows which thing to send signals down to get that to happen. Yeah. yeah. Fact, I mean, are there times even after 10 years of doing this where you're just like, you sit back and go, holy crap. This is nuts that any of this actually works. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you when you think about again the complexity of the system, yeah. I mean, and this goes for so many different parts of the body. It's like, how the heck did this stuff come to be? You know, evolutionarily, yeah. It, it's just amazing, and it and it is this way because it had to be this way because otherwise we wouldn't be this way. Right. But anthropic principle, really. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, but uh, but yeah. It still is. It, there are these moments where you look at it and you're just like, "Wow!" I was actually reading the cool. other day about um, the Luca. I guess it is. It was the, the last universal uh, biological ancestor. Like, what is the l- last living thing that everything that is alive had in common? Mm. And because it works out that there are whatever fifty three genes that are actually common in every single living thing on Earth. You could go back and you can tell all these things about this thing that lived f- four billion years ago yeah. because those are the things that have survived. So we know that it was anaerobic. We know that it used mm-hmm. these kinds of chemical pathways. We know, you know all these like specific things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that makes science so wonderful. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That there's somebody who said, hold on a second. There are these things in common we could figure out what this last ancestor was. And this apparently was a theory that sort of was put to put probably in the beginning of genetic analysis in the Mm nineties. So when I was in college in the early nineties, if I was studying biology, this may have been the new crazy thing that was in some journal or in some magazine that was like, Oh, some kooky people at wherever have decided that they're going to figure this out. And now 30 years later, it is standard operating knowledge in biology. What do you what is going on now that you think thirty years from now is crazy now that thirty years from now will be SOP? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I think some of the well, my my hope is that some of the the individualized medicine and more genetically tailored approaches will become. Uh, more standard operating procedure. Right now, it's totally crazy. You know, you take, we have, we've got these treatments for particular conditions where you take a person's immune system or the, the cells out of their body. And then 
you kind of train them. Yeah. You select out the ones that react specifically to the cancer. Yeah. And then you inject it back in. Sure. And, you know, that medicine would n- not work for anyone else. Yeah. Targeted works immunotherapy stuff. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, it's, uh, it's this stuff called CAR T cells. And uh, you, anyway, you inject it back in and then those specifically trained fighters go. They, they do exactly what they're supposed to do. Beyond that, I mean, CRISPR and the the promise of the of the gene editing and, gene and being able yeah. to to correct um, you know genetic conditions, you know that Especially opens for up a diseases, whole field. genetic diseases, genetic diseases, yeah. yeah, opens up a whole you know new approach to to things as well. All of that is is kind of like out there, crazy like science right now, but I think ultimately will become more and more standard operating procedure. Do you think that we're going to get to the point where people, I mean, there are anecdotal or, or people are playing with the idea of like regenerating spinal cord injuries and, and these kinds of things. Where are we on all of that? Yeah. So I think that was probably also something that you read, uh, was I, I worked in a lab in, uh, Lausanne, Switzerland, um, Gregoire Cotin, uh, was the the principal investigator? Um, he he had this project rewalk. I was only there briefly, only three months. Um, but uh, his his goal was with spinal cord regeneration. Um, after a spinal cord is injured, those the those pathways, those axons are are cut, and essentially you're you've cut the wire. You know the it, like you said. How do you reconnect those wires from you know the 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 top of the brain, that cortex, all the way out to the the very you know tiny muscle in the tip of your finger? You know that that makes your it's finger. It's not a bend. single cable. It's an undersea thing with forty three billion things going down it. Well, or is it? I mean, there's like there's like two cells. There's like one cell that that may carry the message from the the cortex all the way down to your spinal cord and then there's another cell that where it synapses where it connects in the spinal cord and carries it out to uh well a little bit of an oversimplification but carries it out to to the muscle itself there might be like one or two others in there but these are really long cells um but there are but they're all in parallel next to each other it, all in parallel. I mean, yeah, yeah 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 so that's true how do you know you're connecting the foot one to the foot one and the arm one right. to the arm one yes um and uh and his approach was was to combine a whole bunch of different therapies um stem cell therapies chemo or not not chemotherapy in the like cancer tr- sense of things sure. but just like chemicals sure. um and uh electrical stimulation and kind of hoping that this concept in the brain of fire together, wire together, uh, ends up working out that, that maybe we could kind of bridge that gap, inspire some re, uh, some Help regeneration. Help the body to regenerate itself. Right. Um, and, uh, ultimately my part of the project was just to, to stimulate in a part of the brain that induces a walking motion. Cause actually there's, you can walk without thinking about it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, and, uh, and there's even parts of your spinal cord that could in theory make say like a mouse or something walk. If you just dragged it across the ground, all of a sudden it would start having this, this walking behavior. It's weird. It's kind of a but, almost autonomic, like breathing 
like I was walking in the yeah. cemetery the other day and I realized I looked down at my phone for a minute. I looked back up and I was like, I wasn't looking at where I was going. I mm. wasn't thinking about walking at all, but my body kept moving. Yeah. But obviously it's not quite to the level of breathing, say, yeah. or your heart beating. Yeah. It's like one shell out from that. <laughs> from yeah. One orbital shell out from that. But we have some basic behaviors that, you know, they... Swallowing. Swallowing is, is, is another thing. You know, blinking your eye when something comes at it. There's these behaviors that need to happen so fast to make sure that, that injury does not occur, that they occur as reflexes, yep. and it doesn't include the brain at all. Yeah, you know, it, pulling it, away from a hot stove, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, things things that if 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 the brain got looped in, it would take too long to you know send that signal all the way back, and then it's got to go up, and then it's got to relay in the par- appropriate part of the brain, get get connected to that pain center or something. Pain center's got to go to the emotional center. Emotional center has to say, "Oh, ow, yes, that does hurt." We should do something about it. Okay, let's send the message back over to the motor part of the brain. That motor part of the brain, that, or the premotor, connects to the motor, connects down through the spinal cord, and then sends it back out. I mean, but do you look think at all how long. That, but the reason why it works the way it does, you think these are like vestigial things from really early life that yeah. are just, it's just left over. This is reptilian brain stuff, or, you know, earlier than reptilian brain stuff. This is like, Early life, I'm trying to save myself. I'm going to go in that direction right now because yeah. that thing's trying to kill me or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. It, 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 and it's it, still it, in there it in your spinal cord, there and it and it and it was kept because you know the the folks who didn't have it they lost their hand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then they couldn't you know they couldn't catch the the rabbit you know for dinner that night you or know, something. My niece, uh, I told you before, had hydrocephalus, and in part of the process, uh, her optical nerves lost blood flow mm-hmm. and so she's legally blind she's got you know 95 percent blind um a little bit of vision in her right eye off to the left it's like that kind of thing mm-hmm. they know that her retinas are fine yeah they know that her optical stuff in her brain is working it's just that the signals aren't getting from point a to point b because the optic nerve is dead because mm-hmm. it was starved of blood is that the kind of thing, not specifically, I'm just using her as an example. Like, are those the kinds of things people say, you know what, maybe we can do something and get some um, stem cell regeneration or some, you know, some kind of thing that could like give people like that sight back in their forties. Like, is that at all within the realm of possibility? Not yet. Yeah. Um, but the hope is someday. Yes. Yeah. But that's know. not just like, oh, that's absurd. It's, you know. I don't think it's absurd, no. The closer we are to the the initial injury, the more uh, the more structure is still there. Usually. Oh, interesting, yeah. Um, and then there's there's often a, I mean, it, if we're lucky enough to have a laceration, a cut, you know, of, of whatever, you know, again, thinking about the brain as a whole bunch of wires, Usually what we're talking about in, in the case of, say, the optic nerve is you're just talking about a fa- fancy bundle of wires. Yeah. And in, in the, the setting of severe hydrocephalus, sometimes there can be bad retinal injury, but there can also be injury to the nerve itself. Um, and, uh, and, and if the if just like in the spinal cord where there's a whole bunch of fibers that, that go that connect from the brain down to, you know, other parts of the spine and then out to the muscles that when, 
what we would love to have happen is if we, you know, inject some stem cells or something and then encourage them to, to follow their way along those existing wires and then get to the, uh, you know, the injury point and maybe they just grow. Maybe they just grow along the entire length of that wire and they just follow those wires forward and backwards. Somehow I know what I'm supposed end. to do. Right. I'm supposed to do this. Yeah. And then the, the thing that's kind of amazing is that so I'll, I'll go back to BrainGate, which is that project with 100 little wire or 100 little needles implanted into motor cortex. You know, you, that part of the brain was never trained to control a mouse cursor on, on a computer screen. Right. And this comes back to that, that whole neuroplasticity. Because the amazing thing is, we learned, our, we are, but the, the brains of the people that had this chip installed, they learned how to use that chip. You know, it's it, and it's like learning to to walk again. That's that's not a hand. That's not a leg. That's not a tongue. That's not a face. That's not anything that that our body had ever encountered before. But our brain was able to kind of like through trial and error over the course of I think it was like thirty minutes, some maybe an hour or so, acclimate, figure it out, and then they they're they're driving. You know, they're yeah. they're maneuvering around a room accurately yeah. without just like ramming into walls constantly yeah. which is insane i mean when you think about it like sure. you're controlling if you're lucky like a hundred cells and our actions of any given body part probably involve vastly vastly more cells than that sure but instead your brain has learned how to control a hundred different cells yeah. to do this and yeah. and so you know, even if we inject those uh, those stem cells in the spine and, you know, encourage them to grow slowly, um, these things grow slowly, at least as we've learned with peripheral nerves, which can grow back. But, uh, you know, it, gr- it grows slowly and it finds its way and it follows it out to the to the muscle and it follows it up to the to the brain. And then hopefully it connects to the right spot. Probably it won't. But hopefully our brain would be able to... Whatever signal it's getting there in the brain would go, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Oh, the hip bone's now connected to the eye bone? Well, that's weird, but let's fuse it. Um, Yeah. There's a... No, actually, that's a bad analogy. Yeah. (laughs) We'll skip that one. Uh, uh, When you are out in the woods... Hiking the 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 trail, the Appalachian Trail for a hundred and what? How many days? One hundred and twenty-seven. One hundred and twenty-seven days. You're alone. Uh, you're alone, but you're never like truly alone. Yeah, you can walk with other people trail. for a few hours or whatever, and then go your own way. Yeah, I don't know. For the Appalachian Trail is one of the the. I mean, it it is the most hiked long trail in the United States between Appalachian Trail, Pacific Crest Trail, and Continental Divide Trail, which are sort of the big three. Yeah. Um. The AT, people call it the Appalachian Mountain Highway at some points. There's like 6,000 plus people that start the hike each year, of which maybe a third finish. Um, but still, that's a lot of people. And uh, and so, yeah, I hiked it alone, meaning that during the day, it was just me walking. And yeah, you crisscross people. Some people go faster. Some people go slower. You pass them. They pass you, whatever. Um, but uh, there, if you want it, you can end up at the same place at night. Yeah, I'll meet you there the at night campfire. and we'll have dinner together. Whatever. Yeah, 
a lot of times you don't even agree on it. It just kind of happens that, yeah, everybody's, you know, I'm doing 18 to 20 mile days. You're doing 18 to 20 mile days. There's a, there's a brook here. That's where we'll get water tonight. You know, that makes sense. And, and that's the, the, the next water source for, you know, eight, 10 miles or something. So that's, that's largely what decides where you camp. So what did you think about the whole time? Uh, I mean, was that a, was that a deep thought situation or is that a stop thinking deep thought situation? A bit of both. Um, it was definitely a bit of a, a meditative experience. Um, there is a recurring mantra of damn this rain, damn this rain. Oh, you had a lot of rain. <laughs> oh my God. We had, well, you were in the spring, right? Yeah. Yeah. 30, 30 out of 32 days. Well, you rained. went south uh, to north. South to north, yeah. A lot of people go the other direction, right? Or is that the, the majority are are, are northbound? Um, so then, by the summertime, it's not 150 degrees like it would be in Georgia. It's 90 right. degrees like you it would kinda, be. Right? You catch people start February, March in Georgia. Um, sometimes you get hit with snow in um, in Tennessee and the the Smokies. My year, everything was just rain. I think we got snow a couple times, but it was just rain. Um, so your feet are wet. You're just you're just soaked all the time. <laughs> oh my god, thirty out of thirty two days. I said, and <laughs> and, and that was like uh, it, that was the, the longest stretch where it was just. I, I think I was dry for two days, and I got this this photo of my feet, and it just looked like a zombie, it, like wrinkled, swampy. Just oh my god. Did you have uh, any medical problems on the trip? Uh yeah, I got norovirus. Um, which norovirus I mean, is not uncommon from what un- like unclean water sources. So, so norovirus, as I now know, um, through medical training is like the, the buzzword is like a bunch of people having bad diarrhea on a cruise ship. Sure. Um, get norovirus, but the, it, it's, it's a stubborn little virus. The old school stomach bug. Yeah. Thing that people tend like, to get profound diarrhea <laughs> yeah. um and that's not alcohol place- doesn't kill it that's the and that's that's what i've come to realize is is why it traveled so much on the trail because a whole bunch of people got sick that summer um so what we do on the trail is like you get into they, they have these three-sided huts these lean-tos that sure. you get to just kind of as a safety thing a lot of times you just kind of like check in you write your name maybe leave a message for people behind you You're touching the pen you're touching the pen. And we all use hand sanitizer to, to wash our hands. Um, but as I said, alcohol doesn't kill norovirus. Why is that? Why can't it get through the barrier? I forget what That's it is about it. That's the classic thing, right? Is that the alcohol dries out the barrier of the cell and it splits open? That's the it idea. It denatures yeah. like certain proteins, and but it, it doesn't work on norovirus or a couple of other things. But soap and water would have? Soap and water would work. Okay, got it. There's a couple of bugs in medicine that you got to do soap and water for. Uh, norovirus is one of them. And, uh, but at least my, my theory, I mean, take it for what it is, is that, yeah, everybody was using that same pen. Everybody is using alcohol, hand sanitizer. Then they and touch their nose or their mouth or whatever. Touch their nose or people are at these places, the, these lean-tos, and that's commonly where you would eat dinner, yeah. eat lunch, eat, eat breakfast or whatever. And, you know, maybe you, you get in, you sign into the book, and then you eat your dinner, and 
you know, calories are at a premium. You're looking at your plate, you're looking at your hand, you're looking at like whatever residue off of anything yeah. at that point because you're trying to scarf down 6,000 calories a day because that's what you're using and you are not meeting that caloric intake. Um, but yeah, I, that was my that was my biggest uh, illness. And that is well, not that a was place that you want to just have diarrhea for days. Oh, no. I no, mean, I, it's I bad enough if you have a toto bidet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I got myself pretty good and dehydrated um, to the to the point where uh, I was I was feeling lightheaded and I had been sick for like a week straight. Like every Did you keep 30- walking. Oh yeah, you keep walking because what can you do? But I, I mean, you I, I was could doing hole up like, at a hotel and like get better for a few days. Ultimately, that's what I did. I went. I uh, I got off the road. I, I walked myself over to a convenience store and you know asked the guy if there was any way to, to catch a ride to the nearest emergency department. I thought I had Giardia. I thought I'd had bad bad water, and, which is also a common thing if which you're is also drinking. Common. Yeah. So you don't think it was in the water? You really think it was the it was the people? I think it was the pen. I think it was the I think it was the pens. I think it was the the, the, the so places there. I think that makes the most sense, especially since there were so many people that got sick with so, it. If so many people got sick, it's less likely that it was Giardia. Um, more likely because that, that would have like been specific water sources and yeah. and whatnot. Um, and uh, and so yeah, I went to the to the ER um, down in Virginia. And, uh, and, and they, they pretty much looked at me and they were like, look, I could send tests. I could give you IV fluid or, and that would, you know, run up a big bill. Get some Gatorade and go to a hotel. Or you could get some Gatorade and go to a hotel. I said, yep, (laughs) sure. Sign me up. (laughs) I'll just go poop my brains out in a motel six or something. Uh, watched all of, uh, the matrix trilogy um <laughs> over the span of 12 hours on tv sure. with commercial breaks and whatnot and ate a whole bunch of like stofers uh oh man yeah sat there sat there in that hotel just like aggressively hydrating myself with gatorade for i think it was like 48 hours yeah and then got back out on the trail uh but it was depressing i mean it was like well frustrating that you had planned for all yeah. of that you want you were probably really gung-ho yeah I, this is not in any way like that, but I'm watching um, uh, the uh, All Quiet on the Western Front on Netflix. I don't know if you've watched this. No, yet. you know World War One German kids, mm-hmm. and in the beginning they're all let's go, let's sign up, let's go kill those Frenchies or whatever the hell yeah. they're you know pissed about. And you know they get there and they're in the trenches in 1917, late 1917, and they're you know bulging out the water with their helmets Mm -hmm. and it's so cold they can't feel their hands like the first day and they're just like this is not what i signed up for was hiking the trail what you signed up for or obviously things like that you didn't you imagine this is a possibility i could get sick on the trail you're not an idiot but were the benefits of it what you thought they would be like would you recommend it i would i would recommend giving yourself more time than i had because I had a, I had a hard deadline that I needed to finish by early August so that I could start medical school, and what that translated to is that I I had to hike an average of eighteen miles a day, and that doesn't sound that bad maybe, but over 
you know, uneven terrain. 18 miles is with a with a pack. 18 miles a day That's is a long it's, way. A, it's a fair amount. And you know, it's mm. it's it's one thing if it's like we're going to hike 18 miles two days in a row. Yeah. It's quite another when you're doing it day after day after day after day yeah. after day. And really the the thing that it did for me was just that I would get to these these places of just incredible beauty and I would want to just sort of stay there. And, and like spend some time in that place in that moment. Write some poetry. I get it. I, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I do enjoy poetry. I haven't written any poetry, <laughs> um, but just to to kind of like live there for a bit, you know, to just just be there truly. Um, but you just but I had this ever nagging mm-hmm. feeling of you know like. Ugh, you know, I just spent 30 minutes there. That means that I'm an, a mile and a half behind. This means that I'll get into camp late tonight, which means that it'll be dark when I'm cooking, which means that I'll get to bed late, which means that I won't get as much sleep, which means that tomorrow. And it just like, it turned into this kind of anxious feeling of, oh, I just need to go, go, go. And it's the uh, ultimate marathon in some ways. Yeah. And it just, it, it just turned into this, this constant, uh, feeling of of needing to to progress forward, and and that I couldn't allow myself to have those moments as much as I want, and so it, my advice to anyone doing it is is to to give yourself a lot more time than you think you need, and and just feel like it's okay to to stop and enjoy those those moments because there's there are so many just incredibly beautiful parts of the trail, even with the rain, and. Uh, and there's just so many times where, uh, where it would be nice to, to, to just pause and not feel like you have to make the mileage that day. Is there, to finish up here, is there a certain amount of overlap with that thought process in even your career? I mean, uh, you're at Harvard Medical School, yeah. you're at a hospital interning, you go to this place, you go to that place, you go, you know. This is in some ways lately now with a real job as a resident mm-hmm. is the first time that you can actually breathe at least a little bit not as an attending. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. At the end of residency and fellowship. And did it, did it feel, that. Does, is there sort of a, a, a correlation between the, the micro of the trail and the macro of the career where it's like there are times when you wish you could stop and breathe and enjoy the moment more, but you got to keep moving. Sort of. Um, it's more just the the oddness of not having that clear next goal. Yeah. Like you've you've kind of well, once you finish all of that, you've you've accomplished you know all of these steps, and now it's just okay. You're you're free. You know, go go be that doctor. And here you are in your 30s <laughs> and for the first time you have five years old you're 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 free to you're a real to, adult to now you're your... a real boy now <laughs> yeah yeah um and uh and yeah it, it, it it's just almost i mean it, it was something that for the these first five six months i've had to kind of wrap my head around is like okay now it's it's now it's really just up to me you know, to, to define what the next steps are. Sure. And, uh, you know, for, for me, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Okay. Fine. Maybe I am type a, as you initially <laughs> suggested, uh, because I, I, I feel, and I, I, I've, I've always had this feeling like I needed to, to make my mark 
sure. on the world in some way, like an obligation that I need to 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 do something meaningful. And uh, and you know that's that's something that that I do every day that that I'm in the hospital. But there's plenty of days where I'm not in the hospital because what I do is shift work and I work 24 hours a day for seven days straight. But then at the end of those seven days, I, I have time that I can define and I have my research interests. I have, you know, research on predictive models that I'm doing, uh, to try to figure out which patients need what intervention. Uh, but I don't have any hard deadlines for that i don't have things that i must accomplish and and it's up to me it's okay but it's new but it's new yeah and uh and it 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 felt almost uh like the 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 scope of it was too great (laughs) um the 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 options were too numerous the field in front of you was wide open there was no roads at all previously my my excuse for not accomplishing you know, everything that I wanted was because I was too busy sure. with everything else, with my training, you know, with the, the, the realities of being an intern, of being a resident, of being a fellow, you know, of 24 And all those hour things have very defined these. goals. Right. I need to get this piece of paper. I need to have these people sign off. I need to get a job doing X. Well, I just, I need to survive the next two years. Right. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of it was just, okay, head down, survive, learn as much as you can, be a good doctor. But it's a very different thing than, okay, I have whatever distance between now and the end of my life is, what do I want to do with it? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And uh, it's an interesting thing to be confronted with because now it's not, you know, well, I have the excuse of, you know, I, I just need to... To, to survive residency. I need to survive fellowship. Now it's like, okay, you're here. Yeah. You survived. You've been basically what are you cl- gonna do cloistered in academia for 20 years. Yeah. And now, now it's, now it's, now the onus is on me and what am I, how am I going to, to make that mark? And I can't, you know, sort of kick it down the, the road longer. Um, and I haven't yet figured that out. Uh, well, you know, I'll tell you, if I have a stroke, I'm coming to you. <laughs> please, uh, <laughs> please please don't say that because that's a bad stroke and i don't want that for you <laughs> it's like if you're seeing you me should, things are bad yeah <laughs> that's what i tell everyone is like you don't want to see me in the hospital <laughs> that's the worst i want to see you on the want. way to the the the, yeah. the cafeteria maybe in the hello. cafeteria okay yeah, exactly. all right fine uh thank you ben that was a lot of fun all right good well i had fun too <laughs> <laughs> was that all right weird way to yeah no that was great <laughs>